0: There's a place some of us go each fall, a place where the ring of a bell filters through the covers and hurried shouts of, bird up, bring everybody to attention. A place where the playful puppies around our house are transformed here to driven bird finders and where there is confidence in the slow pace of the silver-muzzled old veterans where our friends tell the same old stories each year and none of us seem to mind. Where great shots are forgotten and epic misses never fade. Where an old gun will have a story to tell if only it could speak to us. Where all the good seats are claimed by the dogs. If you have a camp, you know these things all too well. If you don't, well, you're always welcome here. So pull up a chair, tell us about your favorite gunner dog, and we'll admire the birds together and talk the night away by the fire. Welcome to Bird Camp. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Bird Camp podcast. I am your host, Joe Schwenke, and this is a kind of a unique situation here I don't have a guest it's just me I had thought about doing a recording from grouse camp uh, which is where we were the last well this last week I've kind of been working again but uh, it's been busy lots of stuff going on and of course when you're in the middle of nowhere it uh it doesn't really provide for good podcasting and publishing um, along with this uh, Just didn't really get a good chance to record. There was a lot going on. Uh, You know, dogs to feed and take care of, guns to clean, birds to clean, dinner to make. And I'll get into why it was a little harder to do that. And that's in a little nugget of information that I just kind of wanted to recap. uh, Some lessons learned uh, from this last week of camp. I came back Sunday right into a busy work week uh, where they expected me to try to focus on work just so that I can go back up north this weekend while I'm trying to focus on that. But uh, it's just me. It's not something I want to do a lot of, just me talking to you, because I think that there are many more interesting people than me. But uh, since I didn't get a chance to record with the guys, I wanted to at least kind of go over some basics of things that I learned that may be useful or things I observed that I want to pass on. And some of these earlier podcasts, we'll start with this. I was concerned last year, seemed like we had less woodcock flushes. And I think less by like 50% less. And I'm looking here at my camp journals, where we kind of maintain our our flush count records. And I'm at about, yeah, 50% um, over the last three years. So 2020 looked really good. 2021 was down about 50%. I'm happy to say that now that I've been looking at our totals, we're back up to kind of those 2020 numbers. So nothing to be alarmed about. I think I just timed it wrong when we planned our dates and that's the way it happened. That is something however to be celebrated is I was wrong. No big catastrophes are in sight and uh, little birds are still doing well. We have a little contest that we do where we weigh each bird and it's a little gentleman's thing where uh, this year there was a a nice little charcuterie board uh, for the winter and we went for the highest and the lowest weight. Now not everyone here uses grams very often but we shot three of the biggest woodcock that this last three years has ever seen this year they broke the 240 grams uh, weight class as we called it and uh, that is kind of special, looking through our records the last few years. We had yet to ever shoot anything above a 240 gram, and we shot three. So that that tells us our timing is there. There were some very large hens migrating through. Uh, we also shot, I think, one of the smallest on record ever. That was me. I, I don't shoot just big ones. But anyway, something to think about, too. We found it interesting just to do it and see what really the weight ranges were and then it was something to kind of add a little flavor to camp. Uh, No pun intended, the woodcock were delicious, but uh, kinda looking at this, going over my notes, I have them on a tiny little pad, I scribbled them down when I was supposed to be doing other things. A few things that came up, the reason why I didn't record in person there, you've heard some people here talking about the golden hour. This is the first year we've focused on it more uh, to the point where we reserved some of our dog power back uh, and planned where we wanted to hunt that last two hours, really, of the day and that last one hour in particular. But even backing it up a little more, even the last three hours, where we were going to hunt to set us up to go to that last cover of the day uh, had something to do with it. And so... Uh, things about that and we could go into a cover in the morning flush woodcock and maybe a grouse or two and it's an okay cover it's a nice walk it's a beautiful scene you come back for that last 2 hours and quadruple your grouse flushes and i think from what i noticed of it the dog work was better in those evening hours And I think the birds were in positions where we had better looks at birds and our shooting improved. Even if we were tired from all day, I think we had a better shot opportunity in that last little bit. Part of that then drifted the conversation backwards from there. If this is a good cover in the evening, the last two hours, we know these birds don't travel very far. Where is it around here? where we're finding them where's it they go because they they can't be out here we know they're not here during the day and that's one of those things we're going to continue to look into this these birds weren't in the young aspen of course you know that last few hours it was starting to get cold we had some really nasty weather where they were going to have to feed up uh, to maintain themselves and we found them heavily in gray dogwood uh, the red osier dogwoods Um, there were still a lot of clover in some of these areas. We had crops that were full of clover. And so if they're going to go in there in the evenings, they have to sit somewhere nearby and there's going to be a spot where they want to be and where they come from to get there, right? Certain parts of the cover are going to be better than others anyway. And we noticed that right away. Go to the Northwest corner. That's where most of our flushes happened. Okay, well, That that was a consistent thing. Once you knew where they actually wanted to be, that two- or three-hour trip around the cover could really be turned into an hour. Cherry-pick the very best of it, save your dog's calories and and, uh, energy for another spot similar and at a similar timing. But uh, something we observed and thought about. A few other things... I got two pages of notes, so just little highlights here of things that we did. So I can cross off the importance of the golden hour here on my notes. Um, Some of you maybe have saw the Facebook post, my truck problems. Last year this trip cost me about $3,600 in front end repairs, just because I think timing was bad. And that's when I noticed that the shakes and the noise were bad enough going down the highway uh, for me to impede traffic and slow down. This year, the leak that we thought might have been coolant was really just probably my defrost. Thankfully, it cost me $45 for a trained technician to go under there, say, Joe, this really isn't important. By the way, we checked all the fluids, and your front end looks great. Carry on hunting. Very welcome news to me, indeed. Um, Something we had this year as well is there's enough guys in camp with dogs. And this, I think, is just being fortuitous on our end that we had at 1.6 guys with a minimum of one dog each. Most of us had two, and that allowed us to hunt longer with fresh dogs. And I can't say how much of an effect that is, really. Um, It's not really measurable without just, I think, experience. But having that additional dog power all day, especially some younger guys that could really go, uh, I think in the end helped us out too to get to a actually rather nice, comfortable flush numbers. Um, our shooting was not as good as our flushing, but uh, that's of course to be expected when you get into the thick stuff going after the birds. We fought a drought. We'll skip right into this one. This is the second year now, going up to this particular area where, if it wasn't for the rain and the snow one day, I could walk through areas that normally would have just about swamped my knee boots, and I was dry. There, there was still moisture in the dirt under the leaves and things, but I wondered if that had affected the way the woodcock might be staging, if those areas under normal moisture conditions all summer would hold a migratory bird longer because if it's easily forageable for food there that they may just delay a few extra days and kind of stack up and uh, glancing back through our notes over the last couple of years I think it's true I think we work harder now this year we worked harder uh, for our flush count numbers especially on the woodcock and I think something having to do with just plain old low moisture levels in the ground already, uh, maybe get some there, they stay a day or two, and they leave, maybe as opposed to staying for five days and j- being joined by other birds. But uh, something to consider, too, and at that point, you know, if you are in a drought condition, you know, you're just going to have to walk more, and that's, again, where the dog power came back in again. Uh, we fought all kinds of weather. We arrived to cool, cloudy, misting kind of rain here and there, and, uh, and that was great for the dogs. We had great dog work off the bat, um, not consistently great. That's a story for later on in the podcast, but uh, it started out good there. Forecast, we knew rain was coming, followed by snow, of course. this is This is the vacation time. We're not going to just sit and play cards all day. Uh, maybe in another 10 years, I would be much more tempted to play cards. But in this case, we went out in the woods, we we put in a pretty good hard day in the rain. And uh, I think if I talk a little bit about gear here, depending on how much time I use up, I kind of will get into how we dealt with the, the snow and the rain. But uh, needless to say, we, we put away the fancy guns uh, to begin with. And out came the the autos and the the cheap guns cheap is relative of course but uh that gets me into something else we'll get into later but the snow same thing you know the birds were still in spots where if I'm in a feather coat I want to stay somewhat warm and dry and again right it's just a basic thought process of as you look out over that cover where do I want to be to get out of the rain well for one I want to be in the truck can't be in the truck and hunt birds next thing you know next place to go okay well where is it going to be where the wind is a little less for a while we had like a 20 mile an hour north wind where can i go where i'm not freezing where i'm not soaking wet and where i'm still protected from predators and just kind of just something as simple as that helped us get onto birds a little better um didn't always help our shooting you know being cold being wet um being extra layered and things like that and these a lot of the times weren't our primary guns um not our favorite not our favorite shooters but the one we're willing to get soaking wet for a day or two um even if you know you're going to get it dry and clean and oiled again later i don't like to take my gun out uh, when i know it's just going to get soaked that's cost me a fortune before um getting things put back together and properly lubed and oiled and inspected but uh The last weather condition we dealt with was it got hot. The last few days were sunny, warm, getting back up 55, 60 degrees. Everything dried out. And as can be expected, the birds decided to no longer be cooperative. They ran. Um, We had more unproductive points. Of course, the dogs warmed up a little faster. Their breathing's a little harder. It's a little harder for them to smell when they're busy trying to pull in more air. But uh, it was nice to walk in up until the point where you were used to being cold, wet, colder conditions, and then you start to sweat and you get tired too. But uh, that affected the dogs. That's something too, if we keep in mind, don't get mad at your dog when scenting conditions kind of go out the window. And well, why aren't you doing as good as you were the other day? And he's like, well, I can't smell as good as I did the other day. And uh, that's something to to always keep in mind, you know, give your dog the benefit of the doubt. We had some bumped birds uh, at one point, and that's not the benefit of the doubt. That dog just plain old went joyriding. That's my dog. And uh, he bumped a bunch of birds. So we'll, actually, we'll just get right into that part since I'd covered most of the weather. Don't feel like you have to just keep hunting with a dog that decides that for some reason, He's not a pointing dog anymore, or he's no longer going to be cooperative with you. Get on your whistle, get that dog back to you. If you have to, walk him back to the truck. Um, I did not do those things. I don't learn lessons evidently the easy way. A couple of the days went by with this dog more or less out there free running, not handling birds. And at a certain point, I realized that he's out there more or less just having fun and that's not acceptable, uh, when you're far from home trying to have fun and, and worse yet, if I'm hunting by myself and I'm, I'm okay with it, it's okay. If I'm hunting with somebody and I'm wasting their time, that's not okay. Uh, so eventually we ended up in a gravel pit with the collar on, which he had on earlier, but we decided to just go back to basics and we did a 15 minute session on here and whoa, uh, then we walked into the woods. I kept my gun with me in case things went right so that I could get a bird for him uh, to show him that, you know, pointing is a good thing. And then as soon as we got into the woods, he tried to kind of do that whole little fancy free thing he was doing before. And I hammered the woe whistle, tapped him on about a four on my collar, which is fairly hot, but enough that whoa tap. And sure enough, he woed. Okay, recall him back in with a tweet tweet. Here he comes. Good. Kicked him back off again. Let's go find him. We just kind of did that a few times. Just to kind of get it back into him that, you know, we're we're here for a purpose and I need to see you questing with a purpose. I don't know if he ran the next bird over on purpose or if he bumped it coming back to me on a, on an upwind swing. But uh, bird flushed. I hammered that woe whistle, gave him a tap again. When I walked up to where he was, he was still standing there, unhappy about having to stand there, but he was standing. Uh, A little while later, when he did get birdie, he was much more cautious about the scent. He worked it a little better. When I saw what he was doing, I was able to whistle woe without a tap, and he woed. I was able to walk in front of him. He was turning back into a bird dog, but it took me realizing that I had to stop hunting, go back to just put some brains back in him, Uh, to make him a viable option for that day and if you lose the dog you lose the you lose the dog power and uh, we didn't want to do that anymore either but of course it took me a couple days to figure out just go back to training for a little while Um, so if you have a feeling like something like that is happening uh, don't wait like I did go right after it Um, and even if the dog is just maybe not quite blowing you off but just getting a little careless You know, a little session here and there in the woods. Uh, We'll bring those points back around for you. No pun intended, but pun intended there. (laughs) Wet guns. Okay. On here we had a little issue. My... hmm, Getting a little dry here. Hold on. I have a small sampling left some knob creek nine that should kind of do it but uh <laughs> my wet gun is a it's a benelli Monofeltro 20 gauge it fits me almost good meaning it shoots a bit high it's great for for pheasants or anything else coming off the ground where i can just kind of get into the gun enough touch the touch the barrel to the feet hit the trigger knowing the pattern goes high For some reason, however, some of these grouse and woodcock were getting up and then leveling off fairly quick, and I was swinging up into them, hitting the trigger, and shooting right over the top of more than a few of them. The importance of gun fit uh, continues to be stressed. I did figure out, and I wonder too, I mean, my gun mount's been practiced 20,000 times, if I haven't learned a little bit of it wrong... I was able to adjust by moving my hand on the fore end further forward, forcing forcing me to really actually have exceptional form instead of good form. I had to really get that front arm pulling that gun away from my body, and when I did that, it made the gun butt come up a little further into my shoulder pocket, which is probably more proper than I would like to admit. And then the gun started to fit much better, so I had to remember with that gun that we... Get that gun way to the, get that gun hand way to the front, and pull that gun forward to get it up into my my shoulder pocket. But uh, I was able to adjust then. But at a certain point, I was getting frustrated with the gun, and I had a third gun. I brought three with me. Call it the old slump buster. When in doubt with your 20 gauges, just go bigger. I have a nice fitting ultralight 12 gauge cylinder bore. And I had a whole box of brand new number 8 gun clubs from Remington. Just standard skeet loads. And so for that snowy day right in the middle of the week, I was getting a little frustrated by shooting over birds, just not thinking about my gun mount. I said, I got just the ticket here. We're We're going ounce and an eighth. And that tuned me back up pretty quick, actually. I felt pretty good about my shooting. Other than now I had more than one gun to clean. But, uh, it's an effective round, the 12 gauge is, no matter, no matter what anyone wants to say about any of the other ones, 12 gauges will do almost any job if you can get one that you like to carry, and that ultralight's a nice carrying gun, um, and on a cylinder bore over pointing dogs, it's effective, and, uh, I was happy I had it, but, uh, not something I wanted to do all the time for one 12-gauge ammo. It's kind of, it's a point of pride that I like my 20 more. Maybe that's just it. But uh, when desperate times call for, for desperate measures, the old 12-gauge comes right back out. And we named that one the Slump Buster. But it pretty much does the job exactly the way that it says. says. Um, with that, I kind of looked through our notes. We'll jump around again. Our shooting percentages, it looks like here on grouse, were a whisker about 14%. That's a misleading percentage. In that golden hour, over fresher dogs with good weather before it was hot and sunny, I think our percentage was pushing 30%. We also have a range of dogs from puppy to 11 years old in camp. And when you put the puppy down and he says, we're only properly handled birds get shot at. That's fair enough. That's, that's the way you let a young dog learn. You spin that, spin that flush counter without ever pulling the trigger. And that does kind of mess with your percentages. But in the end, it averages out, right? You know, that veteran dog's going to give you more quality looks than another dog might. And, And in the end, okay, so we're at about 14%, which I think is pretty good anyway. Uh, But there were times when we shot, we would come in at the end of the day having shot 40 or 50%. And uh, I think some of that has to do with hunting that last hour, the last two hours, having the right dog in the right cover. Um, Knowing a dog's weaknesses helps in that situation too. When we ran scout, you got to give him a wind coming in. he just doesn't have that downwind training yet. And that's not really training, I'd say it's experience. Some of our other dogs in camp, no problem. Give them a downwind, they punch out 100 yards, work right back to you. You don't really notice a suffering in their performance. But uh, know your your dog and which one you want and when helps an awful lot too. Planning out which way you hit a cover helped. But uh, along with that, there's a story. One of our veteran dogs was injured last year, couldn't hunt, uh, had a a ligament surgery and she's back on the hunting list this year and so we had her on the ground in a non-typical cover it was a balsam and an aspen mix it was right on the edge and uh, the age didn't quite look right the trees didn't look right for the age and it was kind of sparse even uh, by what we would have thought for standards those are things to kind of keep in mind and uh, we wandered around a cedar swamp kind of found the edge again And she, next thing you know, is on point. And I hear, okay, she's on point, 32 yards. I took maybe 15 steps at the most. Sure enough, I'm, you know, I'm ready. Bird gets up, gun comes to the shoulder, bang, miss, bang. Probably faster even than that. Just two shots, down it goes. And about that time, I see Chris, my partner, swinging through, hitting the trigger again. Like, well, I'm pretty sure the one we shot at's dead. We got both of them. Oh, that's... That's cool. Well, also pointed a double, one of which was a nice big red phase. I did not shoot the big red phase. I got a little shorter tailed gray phase. Um, I'm very happy with that because Elsa then had to turn and run it down. I did not evidently kill it quite as hard as I thought I did. And 50 yards later, she catches up to it, grabs it, brings it back. And uh, that's kind of turned into some of her specialty. She's awful good at that. And that's, a good reason to have her around. Um, kind of joking then at the end of that hunt, we put that dog, and I think D-Man was down with that one too. We put him away. Next cover comes along. Okay, Scout, your turn. It would be nice if you could point some doubles too. I don't think the dog knows English, but gets into the cover, points a woodcock, bird up, bird down, recovery, Seventy yards later, he gets birdie again. All right, we found some woodcock. We're gonna we're gonna really do it this time. I take about four steps. Grouse gets up. Bang bang! Down it goes. And then after that, he started pointing doubles. Pointed two pairs of them, and uh, whether or not he actually speaks English, I don't think he does. And I would like to believe that he does know how to herd grouse together to give you a covey rise of birds, but I like fortuitous luck as much as anyone else. We were able to take a few grouse out of that cover and, uh, it was just at the right timing too. One of those later in the days where normally I would have been thinking more about, okay, get back, kind of get dinner going, you know, sit around a little bit, get guns cleaned a little early, but, uh kind of holding the dog off and waiting, still pays off in those situations. Um, shooting an automatic. It's here in the notes. It's it's a really cluttered page of notes. Um, you don't always find all your howls. No matter how hard I want to look, I don't find them, and that Benelli kicks them a ways. But... Uh, I've come up with a philosophy called the hull exchange and uh, I know other guys out there don't find all their hulls either so if I find theirs I pick them up if I find mine I pick them up and I simply expect that those other guys also do the same then for me if they find one I couldn't find it should go in their vest but uh, a few things we did find in the woods that were not encouraging uh, broken glass bottles a few other things I resorted this year, I knew I wouldn't eat it anyway because we like to have lunch in the field or we like to kind of get things out. And there's always candy wrappers and trash around. I threw a five-gallon bucket right in the back of the truck. Now, anytime I had any garbage, it could go in the bucket. If I found any garbage where I parked, it could go in the bucket really without any inconvenience to me. Um, and that was actually rather effective and it kept uh, the covers a little nicer, I think. But, uh something to keep in mind when you shoot an auto is go out of your way to pick up someone else's hulls and then hope that they do the same for you if you can't find them. There's always questions about cover. I've got a few notes here left extra and I'm going to talk about two specific covers that I was in this last week. One we call the ledge and uh this camp's been around for 10 years, and this cover was probably found in year number nine, way back, and it was it was grousy then. It's since grown a little bit. It doesn't have quite the growth rate you would expect. It's heavy on the conifers. There's still there's still pockets of aspen. There's still a lot of dogwood. There's still some good ground cover, uh, the green forbs and things for birds to find. This time we walked through it with a puppy and we had a couple of, maybe a couple bumps. bumps. Maybe even only one bird was bumped until uh, we got to the back and went on point. We struggled to try to find where these birds actually were. It, was, it turned out to be a pair of woodcock and they lifted and they went straight back out of the cover. We've had this similar situation some years ago, and this is why this cover comes up in my memory this way. And this is going to tie into some non-typical covers. Looking at the habitat map, it's an aspen cut about 1953. Trees that are still aspen in there are 18 inches wide. If they haven't blown down years ago and are gone, Um, there's pockets, there's a strip of balsam, and it's thick and it protects that backside edge uh, from the cut that we call the ledge which is something that we would normally think is is what you would want to hunt well these two woodcock went right up over those balsams disappeared and so we okay well point the dog in there and this is how we found it the other couple years ago and here's how it happened again we get back into there again and there's these openings lots again dogwood red dogwood gray dogwood Uh, there's still ferns there's These little, kind of the size of maybe half a football field, of old-growth cedar. Everything shaded out underneath, easy walking. Um, There's still deadfalls all around outside those groves. uh, But plenty of sunlight making it to the forest floor. And uh, once we were back in there, we probably put up another eight or so woodcock. In, In anything from twos to fours, you know, they... It, it was kind of really nice to see again we knew they were they should be back there but uh, we'd seen them in there before but uh, something to think about too that thing on the map says it's a 1950s aspen cut no reason to even drive by it but a couple of birds flew that way gave it away and and now we know it's there and know that if we see something looking like that in the future it could very well hold plenty of birds um, The other cover is called the hillside. We had a visitor in camp from NAVDA chapter that we used to train at quite a bit. As we sat there talking, uh, just kind of not really comparing field notes, but just talking kind of more sentimentally, we were saying, you know, there's some covers we've seen that went from woodcock to grouse to, to aged out. He says, you know, there's covers I come to here where I know they're too old, and I go in there just because of how beautiful they are and the hillside is one of those it still holds birds but you can stand there at the base of that cut or at the the edge of it where you can see and you can look out over a mile or more of Michigan color Uh, you still get the evergreens in the distance there's there's beech there's oak there's the other aspen stands that are still holding on to leaves and uh you can get quite a view and I think that's what that one is kind of turning into it's not big it's maybe if you had a bigger running dog than I do maybe you get an hour out of it I can stretch it into about an hour and a half and uh, it's went from lots of woodcock to a few woodcock and some grouse uh, this last time due to the drought and its elevation I wasn't expecting a lot but we ended up with a few woodcock out of there I shot a grouse out of there Chris shot one out of there um, and that's kind of the end of the pressuring we did on that piece anyway. But uh, you'll eventually find a few like that, I'm sure. I like it. There's a there's a little crick that runs in there. It's not a stream. It's not a creek. It's a foot and a half or so wide and an inch deep. And it winds its way through these old, old pines, and then you pop up over that ravine edge and into the cut. And uh, I think I'll probably hunt that as long as I go to that area. Uh, regardless of how productive it is, only because if it's hot, that shady walk along the creek just is kind of comforting and relaxing. And if it's cold, that's kind of a nice spot to go anyway, just especially on a sunny, cold day. But uh, you'll you'll find those. And uh, something to think about, too, as you remember covers as you know, young go-getters may not quite think about it that way yet but uh, I'm in transition from young go-getter to uh, whatever they want to call an old stodgy guy with a side-by-side. But uh, on here, what to do about the crowd. <laughs> I love that note. Um, And this isn't that somebody asked me this question. It's that we've had to deal with this before. Um, This year, the crowd was less. I'm not going to complain about hunter numbers around me. Uh, I was messaged by somebody who was in a group that used to come up the same week we did, went a week early to avoid the crowds, only to realize that I think everybody went a week early to avoid the crowds, and he said it was an absolute circus. Um, you'll have that. Stick it out, you know. On some of these covers, right, the ledge cover where the backside where no one would think to go hunting produced nine or 10 good flushes, eight good birds with some reflushes in there. And if you were, if you were shooting some rough booted birds, uh, there were some good opportunities to get your birds in there um, in a place that people wouldn't go. Um, That's kind of how you beat the crowds. Uh, Be willing to drive a little further down the trails not quite like my friend Dave did where he broke one of the mounting brackets off the frame of his truck and uh he is now without his truck through this next uh coming week's trip but uh talked to him today about some food issues and and some pairings but uh I know how it feels I, I broke my truck two years ago with a shackle that needed welded back on doing the same exact thing but uh A few things to think about here. How do you beat the crowds? By the time we were getting to the woods, it was already 9. We had a thing where we were recording the earliest bird, not of the whole week, but every morning was a chance to get an early bird. And the earliest bird out of the week by clock time was 9.55. By then... Grouse have stopped feeding, they're back to where they're supposed to kind of be hiding. Things to think about that we found them in is those balsam swamps. Somebody called it big woods was another one, but really it's not the big woods itself where there's nothing underneath. It's that edge of the big woods to anything else where the sun gets in and you get just a thick little pathway of of cover. We noticed this because as we're driving in or driving between covers, we could see birds sometimes near the trail, crossing the trail at these points. And we had to kind of start to make note of it. Well, it's 12 o'clock and this bird crossed the road here out of this stuff, which is 40-year-old beech trees with some beech brush on the edge, going into this pine grove over here, which doesn't even really look that big. But there's gotta be a reason why they're there. I think for one, everyone was walking around where they wanted to be, but also thinking about those non-typical midday areas, that little strip of brush probably held that bird just fine. And uh, getting away from the crowd is gonna kinda be what the grouse are doing too. You know, if those same areas are getting hit, they'll find somewhere where they're not bothered and still safe and uh, thinking one step ahead uh, might get you a few extra birds. But, uh, those are some of the thoughts I'm looking around here for, kind of through the notes. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking I'm getting closer to the end of what I have here. I'm at almost 40 minutes, which isn't so bad either. But, uh, I'll do a little bit about gear. I'm not sponsored by any of these companies, although I do know some of the people who are. Um, what to do with the rain. <laughs> Every year it rains on us at least one day, some days two or three in some weeks. Um, what worked for me in the past was a cheap $25 frog tog rain suit you're eventually going to tear parts of it some heat and some duct tape and you're repaired again. Um, you're not out much money when you finally totally shred it, which is what happened to me. And it ended up in a garbage can in the back of a truck uh, last year. That was after I had thoroughly wrecked it, but, uh, just a basic frog togs, and be sure of course, to wear enough orange on the outside, um, to remain legal. And, uh, it does interfere with your shooting but you're not soaking wet either uh, so the trade-off is pretty decent. Um, This year I had slowly accumulated some pike gear and considering the amount of water I was in I wasn't really that wet. I had a Tongass pullover, Tongass pants and uh, you do get damp underneath. You do get a little clammy Um, but considering that I was standing in rain, being rained on, um, my only thing too, was, you know, walking through a cover, you're going to brush into everything. It's going to, you're going to knock into a sapling. It's going to rain on you off those leaves. And I should have been thoroughly soaked, miserable, and back at the cabin within an hour. Um, put in a three, four hour hunt. Um, the time I really did get soaked, scout doesn't recover birds very well and i dump one in the center of these uh, six to eight foot high balsams with dogwood under in there too the red dogwood that's kind of already grown up and bent back down and there was i had a really nice mark on it it didn't fly far when i shot i know exactly where this bird is laying it's just on the other side of those really wet trees and when I finally, and I'd been in the woods probably, I'd been out two hours already by then. I walked in those 20 feet, saw the bird right at my feet, picked it up, walked 20 more feet to get back out, and I was thoroughly soaked. It, but you're putting a lot of pressure on that material, like physical pressure, pushing onto it. Um, and I, at that point, I was wet. Within 40 minutes of walking, just kind of walking around uh, where I wasn't doing that anymore, I was already beginning to be warm again. I could feel kind of being dry, not really dry, but at least it felt that way. When I got back to the truck, turn on the ace on the the heater on the defrost, it didn't take very long to be actually quite comfortable, and you could feel and it's it's creepy, weird feeling you're in a hot truck, and your legs feel cold because if you've been at the beach and the wind blows the moisture off you and you feel that evaporative uh, cooling process that's exactly what was happening to these pants and so you get that tingling cool like this is weird but uh you know you did dry out rather quick so you know a a non-sponsored plug to pike that it's nice stuff and uh i wore it all week in the end i do think i could It did start to smell a little bit i think that's just because i wore it all week and uh actually i I wore it before that week too without washing it so maybe that has something to do with it but uh some of the other gear (laughs) um if you buy something expensive like a really nice bird and fish knife um be aware that you may lose it I have I have a nice expensive knife. Uh, the, the maker is now deceased. I brought it with me, and every time I cleaned birds, I had a $12 wooden-handled rappella, a 4-inch fillet knife, and it worked fantastic. Um, I almost always keep one around just because they are almost a perfect bird and fish knife. Um, not that the fancy knife makers want to hear that, but if you lose a rappella... You don't feel quite so bad. Um, (laughs) Same same reason why I don't feel so bad when I get a a $1,000 gun wet as opposed to a multiple thousands of dollar gun soaking wet. Um, Just it's okay when it's not quite as expensive. But I do enjoy those fine quality products. And uh, I always kind of look greedily on as other people have them. And uh, eventually I kind of cave and get one of my own. And then my wife wonders why I stress out when I set it somewhere, forget where, and then proceed to undo all my packing, all my putting away till I find it right where I left it, where it was safe. And have to put all that stuff back again. Meanwhile, being a jerk to everyone who tries to talk to me. But uh, that might be the price to pay for, Uh, Spending good money on very quality things is then really make sure you remember where you put it. Um, (laughs) That is, that's, uh, no matter what you do, no matter what occupation or hobby, setting down something expensive and losing it stinks. And uh, either way, do your best to remember Um, I am through most of these notes here. I think I've done rather well. Uh, Thank you, Jordan, for emailing earlier. I'm sorry I didn't mention you at the beginning, but uh, a new listener from central uh, Minnesota, not Wisconsin, Minnesota, and he had asked, oh, when's your next podcast coming out? That was a couple of days ago, I think he emailed. Well, I'm going to try to get this thing just pre-listened to once, make sure I didn't do anything too egregious, which I'm I'm 99% sure I haven't yet. And uh, I'll publish this just as a kind of a camp recap and some of the lessons learned. Um, With that, some plans coming up. I'm going to be hunting hopefully this Monday with a guy I can sit down. We're going to have a a little morning duck hunt, I hope, have a nice breakfast, and then uh, sit here in the study and talk about I followed him on Facebook for a few, more than a few years now. Um, and he's just one of those interesting wing shooters, um, deciding to, deciding to do experiences, um, maybe over quantity or anything else. And, uh, I'm excited to get him on. He's going to be kind of like the old Ed, Ed Davison, uh, talk that we had. Um, just gets in his head he wants to do it or he wants to see it before it's gone and so he goes and uh, his his offering of i offered i wanted him on the podcast and he says well it's going to cost you a wood duck well as far as unique experiences go i hopefully right behind the house here qualifies to him uh right here in woodrow bottoms in our our own homemade wood duck hole but uh that should be fun Ooh, I forgot a major part on these notes. Two things, really. So if you hung around this long, you're clearly interested in bird camps or stuff like that. The camp I'm in has started because I decided one day to go hunting. I just was going to take a trip, and I told people around me that I knew hunted, mostly my family, a friend or two, I'm going to be here. I rented the cabin. It has extra beds. There should be game and opportunity uh, available there. If you want to come up, come up and join me. And uh, the cabin was full. Won't necessarily happen maybe that way for you, but that's how it started for me. And it went pretty easily from there most of the time. Um, Sometimes people don't mix and match real well. Uh, but in the end that's kind of how it started and it's pretty easy to start that way really go hunting ask a friend to join you i met a lot of my friends through navda through other dog things um some of them actually just were strangers on social media until we met and realized we get along um but with that in mind don't be scared to do it um I think a lot of the, a lot of the issue is, oh, I don't know what to do. Go rent a place and go hunt and just go, you know, that's how it started for me. Just go, invite some friends. And, uh, next thing you know, you'll end up with like we had six guys, 11 dogs, um, some pure pandemonium at times, uh, not actually in the cabin because we don't let that happen in there, but, uh. That's how things get going, right? You start. And once you take a few steps, it gets much easier. Um, I know some of you might find it fun to listen to what we had on the menu. Some of you may think that we are totally off the wall and extraordinarily bougie. We are. It's okay. Um, There isn't a man out there that doesn't appreciate good food, and I think most women would, too. We started out um, with meatloaf on Monday. The reason why I'm doing this, I'm not saying this just to brag. This is, I want to encourage you to do what you would like to do. We do a fairly extensive kind of menu where we each take one night and we're responsible for feeding the camp dinner. Um, there is a little bit of one upmanship in there sometimes, as well as we try to put a good quality feed on. Um, this year I presented a total catastrophe. I, but that's, that's the the last Saturday of camp. The, the guys ahead of me, of course, cause I ended up on the final day. I was supposed to be the grand finale. It turned out to more like be the grand flop. Um, but to think of the things that are possible when you go to camp and if you're not comfortable with lots of cooking, then by all means do what you're comfortable with. Um, One guy made meatloaf, a whole six pounds of meatloaf, which was great for sandwiches for about three days. We had lunch meatloaf sandwiches. We had uh, a a great stroganoff. We had a walleye on Wednesday, um, pistachio-encrusted walleye. Um, Tuesday was taco Tuesday, right? Again, you don't have to be fancy. Um, And he's kind of come a little ways with it too there was his wife sent up a fresh salsa verde that she had just canned um he made guacamole there was a lot of food it could have fed Pancho Villa's army actually he had like 50 tortillas for five or six of us but uh ended up with some steak dinner we had a nice New York strip one night I tried to do it's an old French recipe that went back to kind of almost Roman times according to the 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 recipe I got it from the the little blog post and it's just supposed to be kind of a simmered in wine uh, grouse dish. Originally it would have been used for like old cock pheasants or um, chickens and uh, in this case we used grouse and a little bit of pork loin uh, just to kind of boost up the numbers of feeding enough people and it flopped utterly Uh, cooked it for a little too hot for a whisk or too long and, uh, the grouse was dry, crumbly, almost to the point of actually it was inedible. I couldn't do it. I couldn't even eat it. And, uh, so instead of being the grand finale, I absolutely have to apologize to all the grouse out there that I completely ruined like four or five birds. Um, just a flop. The only thing that saved it was the pie was good. And my slider appetizer slash side dish was really pretty good too. Other than that, um, it does happen to everybody, including me, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things I would encourage you to, to do what you can do, what you're capable of. Um, if you don't want to put in a bunch of time cooking, that's fine. Uh, we did it that way just so that you don't have a bunch of time cooking more than once. Um. And it does lead to nice camaraderie and kind of some sportsmanship between everybody. But uh, if what you want instead is just grilled brats and, you know, and kind of a, what is it, those plastic containers of macaroni salad, then, man, do that, enjoy it, be thankful for it, and, uh, you know, enjoy the camaraderie all the same. But uh, we do it a little bit through our menu, and it's something that... uh, Maybe I can encourage people to try a little bit as well. Um, Besides that, I think that's about it. I'm going to go up to another camp next week. Hopefully I do sit down with the podcast machine here and get those guys talking. Um, I'm going to say it half tongue in cheek. They're older and wiser. Uh, One of those is right. One of those may be right. Um, But I'm going to be up there with some blue hairs and... uh, Good fellas, lots of knowledge between them all, hopefully. Um, Something comes out of it, but camp talks are always good. There's always something that should come out, and uh, we'll get back to, of course, guests and interviews and things uh, right after I'm done running through this kind of like rock star burnout of October and early November, Um, running on not quite enough sleep. Great nutrition, clearly. But uh, trying to keep everything straight in my head too, with between this podcast and other things going on, and uh, and it's just going to be fun. What am I? I'm lying to you. It's it's all going to be fun, regardless of what I forgot. By the way, if you are going to go to camp, make a checklist, a really thorough checklist. Um, I have once left my collar chargers all home. Uh, This year, two of us actually forgot dog food, me and someone else. Um, And so my boys ended up on the hardware store special. Um, There was no variety to choose from. That was the bag that they had, so I bought it. And uh, as long as they were running and living out of the truck, they seemed to have been fine. Um, The first accident in the house happened evidently this morning after I left for work. Uh, So maybe the food is less good on, you know, house-rested hunting dogs. But, uh, again, there's nothing better than a well-organized hunter who doesn't forget things. But uh, how many, two or three of the Garmin watches or some compatible watch was missing chargers as well from camp? Um, It's just, it's always funny the things that we forget. But on that note, I will wrap this up. Again, I appreciate you for listening, especially to me droning on and on about fun that I had um, and whether or not you have been to camp or will go to camp or didn't have a camp this year. um, Consider consider starting one. I guess that's it right there. But uh, again, I do appreciate you guys for listening to me. And for those of you that support the podcast, uh, thank you. Um, support the podcast. There was a fundraiser. This is the last thing. I promise I won't ramble on past this. Um, There was a fundraiser to do some sharp-tailed grouse habitat fundraising, and it raised a good bit of money. Uh, We are following through this weekend on our end of it, and that is to cook the the field lunch that was auctioned off to make that money happen. Um, There was also... Another generous donation in to raise that money up to eight fifty total. Um, I've been sitting here on some patreon funds, not spending it of course, because I haven't really needed to for anything. I'm gonna probably take a portion of those funds and round that up to probably an even thousand um, not to brag this is this is the money that people send to. Through the Patreon to support the podcast, and if I don't have any podcast expense, it sits there and it accumulates. And uh, this is this is me being accountable to you um, that that do support the podcast. Uh, that money is now going to be spent a little bit. It's going to go into some Sharp Tail Habitat fundraising, and uh, we're going to round that that number up to an even four digits and get it to a thousand, and then. Uh, have Heather Shaw back on at some point talking about the work that that money is helping to do. But, uh, so that little bit of business, I appreciate the, the support. Um, this is kind of what I was hoping that the money would do is, uh, is conservation as well as, you know, if there were expenses, I could cover them as well. But again, I do appreciate it. And, uh, I think with that, I'm going to sign off until next time.